I mean, there are at least a couple of times where I, I remember um, James sort of motioning to me with her head because we were we were in this open plan office and so we couldn't have the conversation there and he'd sort of do these ones and, and go, you know, like, meet me out in the car in the car park and we go and sit in the car park and he's like, I think we've run out of money. I think we're going to run out of money. I don't think we're going to make payroll next week. And we'd sit in the car and cry for a bit. And then we'd go, OK, come on, what can we do? Welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where female founders step into our world. It's a world of change makers and innovators. We're talking to women paving their own way and extracting the very best lessons. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for ambitious women who are building businesses of the future. So strap in, fellow Lady Brain, and ride with us to Ladyland. So how do you build a successful business before the market's truly ready? Today, it seems that everyone has a side hustle. But back in 1999, the startup ecosystem was just starting to emerge and shopping online for your everyday needs was, to be honest, a foreign concept. At that time, Kate Morris was just 21 years old when she started an e-com business from her garage in the suburbs of Melbourne. That garage startup became online beauty retailer Adore Beauty which stocks over 200 brands and in 2020 is set to turn over $100 million. We kick off the chat by going back to 1999, where there was no startup ecosystem or support system. It was just her. I don't recall there even being a startup ecosystem. Like, I didn't know anybody else with a business. I'd literally never even thought about the idea of starting a business myself. It was not something I had any experience with in my family. I mean, my parents were both social workers. Like we were just supposed to go to uni and study really hard and then go and get a good job. And so that was completely outside my frame of reference. Um, The only person I knew that had a business was my boyfriend's dad, who owned a motel out in Keeler, out near the airport. that That was my very first experience with anybody owning any kind of business. Never even thought about it. So where did the idea come from and where did the confidence to pursue that idea come from if you didn't have a point of reference at the time? Yeah, good question. I mean, the idea came from, uh, so my, my uni job was working on the Clarence counter. So I was in like, you know, the white outfit with the red shoes and um, it was the funnest job ever. I, I really loved it. It was great. And I just got to talk about skincare all day long. Um, but, you know, it was very obvious to me that most women didn't like going into department stores and found that whole experience just generally kind of unpleasant and a bit annoying and sort of a thing that everybody seemed a bit resigned to, but there was no there was no choice about mm. it. If you wanted to buy skincare, that was what you had to do. And um, there was a the very early days of online shopping and to me it was just like, okay, oh, that, someone will do that for beauty then because people will, people would enjoy that. And I was from Tassie myself and so I knew that you know, how many people there are living in towns where you just can't get stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was logical to me that somebody would do an online beauty store but um, had never kind of really contemplated that that would be me and I sort of waited for a while for someone to do it. It's like, where, when is this? When is this Australian beauty store going to launch? Like, it's going to be great. And then it didn't and I think all my friends just kind of got sick of me banging on about it and it was eventually it was my boyfriend who said, well, look, you know, are you going to do this or what? Mm-hmm. And not until that moment did I ever consider it. But, um, look, I guess as far as as far as far the confidence, um, 
maybe it's it's good, all the things you don't know, you know, mm. kind of being 21 and a little bit clueless, is that, yeah, sure, well, why not, why not me? Um, and I think my parents had always brought us up to um, just kind of believe in ourselves and and whatever, you know, whatever your heart calls you to do, then then mm. you should do that. And that, you know, um, so I think, which is a pretty, which is a pretty great thing to give a kid really, mm. <laughs> is that, that just idea that, well, if you want to change something, then you can. And um, I thought, well, why not? I've got a, as good a shot as anybody, which is of course not true, but. Um, <laughs> but you didn't know that. But That's I didn't know that at the time. So it was okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's amazing. So you experienced pretty steady growth, slow, steady growth over the first 10 to 15 years. Yeah. In the early days, did you have to take on other work to pay yourself and survive? No. So what I was doing was I was still studying part-time, so I hadn't even finished my degree yet. And so I I switched back to um, to part-time and via distance education so Mm. that I was sort of studying just enough to get a little bit of like old study or whatever it was called at Mm. the time. So I lived off, you know, just kind of beans and rice basically <laughs> um and my it was my boyfriend that went out and and got other jobs to kind of feed mm. us both so that we could eat but um no I just lived like a very poor person for the first couple of years before we, the business could afford to pay me a wage yeah because it's one thing that a lot of people within our community talk about is you know in the early stages of building a business mm. when do you start to draw out a salary yeah um to be able to pay yourself, sure, it's kind of that catch twenty two of seeking external work to fund your life versus drawing a salary and not being able right. to reinvest it into the business. Do you oh, have any it's really hard. For people? Oh, look, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's it's. I mean, starting a business is not for the faint hearted, mm, right? No. And if mm. if you're like, I don't think it's ever something that you should do for the money. It's a kind of a thing that you do because you have to because you can't not do it mm-hmm. um, because that's, the, you know, the first couple of years, like you're not going to be living this kind Live of flashy large. entrepreneur life. No, you are not. It no. is beans and rice. There, is, yeah. there is no yachts in the first couple of years, I can assure you. Um, I don't know. I mean, look, I, I've seen... I've seen people use part-time work as kind of an excuse to not get started or to not really mm. go all in. So I think there's some danger there of people going, oh, well, I'm just, oh, you know, I'm going to still work four days a week and I'm just going to work on this one day a week. I'm like, mm. yeah, you're never, you're never actually going to get there though, are you? So you have mm. to kind of, you know, you have to go in far you enough. Do. But mm. obviously I understand, you know, you got to eat and particularly if you've, you know, you've got kids or, or yeah. whatever to support then, I mean, there are real... There are real necessities around yeah. those early those early stages, which is why I guess it's it's helpful if you've got a you know a partner that yeah. can support you. So it's like okay, well, one of you's working and the other yeah. one goes all in. Um, but it's oh look, I don't think there's any one size fits all mm. yeah kind of advice on that. But you kind of can't put it off. Do you know yes. what I mean? I think people sort of go oh well, you know, I'll I'll start when I can afford it. It's like you know what. You've got to just start. You, you, yeah, you, there won't be that moment. <laughs> there You've won't got to be that moment. The, the you have to actually the take edge. the leap at yeah. some point. Yeah. Like there's no safe way of doing this. Mm. Um, it involves significant personal risk no matter when you do it. Yeah. Mm. And so then was there a moment where you're like, oh, my God, I just want to throw the towel in? Did you have any of those like, what am I doing? I mean, it probably would have been close. Yeah. All <laughs> the time. Like what, today or today. every day? <laughs> 
<laughs> Yesterday, tomorrow, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, look, those those happen regularly and, and particularly as I saw all my friends graduate from uni and uh. go and start and get real jobs and, you know, buy suits and work in the city and here was me in my garage with my cat and... You know, that was a bit depressing for a while, which is why you've really got, you know, you've really got to want to do yeah. what you're doing because it can't, it can't be about, you know, the trappings. Mm. Um, you've got to, you've got to want it so much mm. that you're willing to put up with anything to get it done. So how did you grow the business in the early days? How did you find those customers? Oh, well, look, in the early days, and look, bear in mind, this is a very different time. Mm. Like there was no, you know, Facebook or smartphones or, Mm. you know, Mm. broadband even. Right. Like literally (laughs) dial-up. Faxing. (laughs) I faxed things. I did fax. What a throwback. Well, because some people you were trying to contact didn't have email addresses. This is how old it was, God. (laughs) Um, So, look, it was very much word of mouth and when I say word of mouth, I don't mean like in a social media amplified influence kind of way. I mean like literally, literally yep. you would have to hope. Oh, like so that, so that was kind of what I did um, was to try and make that experience of ordering and getting your order so exciting that people would have to tell somebody mm-hmm. about it. And I used to even put in like sort of little extra referral cards in the box saying, hey, you know, give this to a friend and they can have 10% off their first order or whatever. You know, if you love this, please tell mm-hmm. somebody. Just encourage people to even think of it. Um, but, you know, we, I'd wrap each of the products in tissue and that was kind of where our um, little trademark of putting chocolate in the box mm-hmm. yep, came it. from, although in the early days it was very friends. You know, those little, oh, oh my God, God. You know yes. the ones with the little marsupials yeah, on them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The really thin ones. The really thin oh, ones. It was like yeah, yeah, purple yeah. and white packaging, was it? Um, well, they were different colours depending yeah. on what animal it was. But, yeah. yeah, just like a little sort of thin little sort of wafer of furry chocolate. Friends. Furry friends. And then it was caramello koalas for a while. Oh, you yeah. upgraded? We did. But then, <laughs> then you know, they had too melty. Too oh, melty, yeah, which no, is yes. when it became Tim Tams and then it's kind of been that ever since. But anyway, that's by the by. But it was, it was just the idea of people sort of opening up the order and going, oh, that's fun, oh, that's nice, what a treat, you know, because that's why I felt that's how you should feel about beauty products is this should be, you know, this should be a treat for mm. yourself. This is this is something that's just for you mm. and shouldn't actually be about what it's going to make you look like for anybody else. Mm. It's just to make yourself feel good. And so um, the whole idea was making that order enough of a treat that people would, would want that feeling again of opening up the box and, um, mm. you know, <laughs> tell a friend, hopefully. Mm. Yeah. Pass it on. But, look, mm. it was really slow going. Um, yeah. I did some, I did some do-it-yourself PR because back in the day they used to have magazines like at the checkout in the supermarket that were about the internet and were about websites. <laughs> 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 this is sounding dorkier and dorkier, isn't it? Um, uh, you know about websites that you could you could go and shop from because people didn't know about that yeah. back then. So we got in a few of those, but um, it was really it was slow going. And unless you have a lot of money, there's this whole kind of money and time mm. equation, right? And so yes. if you don't have the money, then you're just going to have to do it the slow way, which is, which kind of actually worked out well because the way I figure it, when I started my business, it was probably about 10 years too soon. Yeah. And so all of the businesses back then, but that sort of very early dot-com boom days, all of the ones that spent a lot of cash and tried to grow, grow quickly, consumers weren't ready for that yet and so they all just burned out whereas I didn't have the money and so I had to do it the slow way which kind of fitted in nicely with the way that our customers were adopting online shopping Mm. too. Mm. 
So I guess, you know, it <laughs> seemed kind of, it seemed at the time like we were sort of wading through sludge, but um, in the end, I guess it, it kind of worked out all right because yeah. yeah. it allowed us to grow slowly and to generate some positive cash flow until, until well, it was probably sort of 11 or 12 years in when all of a sudden there was definitely this big uptake mm. of e-commerce and it was, you know, it was time to go. Right. It was go time. Yeah. It was go time and that was when we that was when we raised capital. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And so um in those kind of the the former years, what did you outsource first? Did I outsource? Um I certainly outsourced the building of the website. Yep. Um couldn't afford to yeah. hire that kind of person. Mm. The way that I approached hiring early on was to first hire all of the, you know, all of the sort of the, the more junior or more manual kind of jobs that mm. um, were the things that were like, oh, this is kind of draining my life. So, you know, packing up the orders and taking them down to the post office, right? Um, you know, answering customer service emails, that sort of thing, were things where it wasn't particularly adding all that much value for it to be me doing mm-hmm. those things and my time was probably better spent going out and talking to brands and trying to get mm. more products on the website or doing marketing. So I would outsource the little bits and pieces of things that were taking up my time. Um, but look, I didn't hire like sort of qualified people for for a fair way into the business actually. I feel like it's a later thing in the mm. business where you, where you say, okay, right, I need to hire someone who knows how to do this better than I do. But those people, mm. like those Cost people are expensive. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. They sure do. So I, yeah, it's, it's kind of the thing as an entrepreneur, you get to be a bit good at quite a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and then at a certain point when you can afford it, you bring in the extra yeah. expertise. But that was part of what we needed to raise capital for yeah. the first time was like, okay, I actually need to hire someone who's better at managing and overseeing the website yeah. than I am. Like yep. I need yep. an expert to do this now. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Was there anything that you did that you, looking back, should have outsourced earlier? Look, I think I think we really were constrained by that kind of timing issue. So there's nothing I look back on and go, oh, gee, I should have spent way more money on that earlier or something because if I did that, then we would have gone broke, you know. It wouldn't have actually helped. Um, I think we held on to like, uh, so um, my co-founder and I, I think we we held on to kind of doing all the the bookkeeping and accounting ourselves for way too long Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just, okay, this really doesn't make any sense for him to be spending all of his time on mm. entering in invoices. Like mm-hmm. that's just, please, get a bookkeeper. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, just to, to get the grunt work out of the way because otherwise, it was, you know, every month the Baz was such a drainer and it's just yeah. just get somebody to just get that done for you because you're not adding any value, value. to it. Yeah. 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 Mm. Um, so you shared how you acquired some new, you acquired customers in the early days. But I want to ask you about how you um, acquire customers today. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, you know, it is a tough one getting new ones on board. So what do you do? Oh, look, I mean, obviously the, the whole sort of digital marketing mm. landscapes really evolved and when I started there wasn't even any such thing as Google AdWords mm. or Facebook advertising or all that kind of thing. So um, I think it just, you know, you just have to have to kind of, go with the times, don't you? Um, I mean, a bit, certainly a big part of it um, and sort of maybe a, lo- a thing that a lot of people forget about marketing is that at least half of it is building a product that customers want. Mm. 
because goodness, it's easier to find them when you have something that they're looking for. Yes. Um, so, you know, I so saw a huge part of that over the years was building out the brand selection and continuing mm. to be the place, you know, the destination for mm. where was the latest and coolest stuff. Um, because, I mean, the, the truth of it is, is that the beauty industry is really brand oriented. And if you, you know, if someone wants to buy MAC foundation and we don't have it, very hard, you know, it doesn't matter what we do from a marketing standpoint, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you're going to be pushing it uphill to try and acquire that customer. Much easier to try and work on um, kind of improving the net, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, look, honestly, that's that's where we focused a lot of our attention and, and built up, you know, a lot of strength over the mm. years in um, search engine marketing and search mm-hmm. engine optimization. where, you know, if we had a product... You know, if a customer was looking for a product that we sold, guaranteed they would find us, you know, and that's, mm. that's you know, mm. we're still really good at that. And then the challenge over the years then becomes more about moving up the funnel um, to customers who may not even be in a kind of shopping frame of mind at that time and, and that's much more around content marketing. So how can you, you know, if even if a customer's not searching for a particular product, would they like some education about, you know, mm. particular skin concern they have or do they want to know how to do a smoky eye or they want to know how, you know, that whole Dyson Airwrap thing, like does that work, how do I use it, you know, all, all that kind of stuff is is more about um, providing the information that people might be looking for rather than necessarily a product that they might be looking for. Yeah, and I guess that also um, if you become seen as a sort of education hub yeah. in the beauty industry for the customer, that increases the level of engagement they have with your sure. website and yes. your brand and that ultimately will convert. Well, that's the thing and that's the whole evolution of retail generally mm. is about not just being a place where you can buy stuff um, but a place that is a whole kind of end-to-end solution mm. for this for this whole problem of, hey, mm. how do I feel my my best and most confident and fabulous when I walk out the door every mm. morning? Mm. Um, it's not so much about just selling a thing. Product, yeah. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. not the transaction. No. It's Correct. so much more than that. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And so you just have to think about what does the customer need us to be mm. in a much more holistic way. Yeah. Yeah. We read an article where um, I think you were talking about a project that you have on at the moment, which is around building an AI-powered personalization engine. I think yeah. that was, I think that was <laughs> the, the words. That's the it. actual quote. You nailed it. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, so to kind of provide more personalized product recommendations and content right. to the customer. Can mm-hmm. you talk us about talk to us about that project? Oh, yes, it's really cool. Um, so that's that's an engine that we that we call Beautywise. Um, and at the moment it's powering a lot of the way that products are displayed on the side, although you can't necessarily see it. Mm. Um, but we've been working on that for, oh, look, it's coming up on a couple of years now. Software is hard mm. um, <laughs> to try and to try and actually get it to work. So what we've tried to do is, is take, okay, what are all the things that, I mean, as 19-year veterans of beauty, what are all the things that we know about all of our different products and how do our customers interact with all of that information on the site? I mean, you know, we have you know, like two and a half million visitors to our website every month. Wow. Um, and each of them will, you know, behave in a, in a slightly different way. What products do they look at? What products do they scroll past? What do they add to their bag? What do they check out with? What are they, you know, 
click onto that page and click straight off of it again because it wasn't what they're looking for? How do we combine all of those things in a machine learning sort of way so that we can be really relevant in guiding each individual customer to the products that are going to be perfect for them? Um, And that's, that's hard. It's really hard. That would be hard. It's a lot of data points that you're well, pulling. Well, it's a lot of data points um, and how do we, you know, combine them and weight all of them mm. correctly mm. Um, to give that really, really personalised and super-duper relevant experience mm. um, on a, you know, on a one-on-one level. It's not just, you know, people who like this also like that. It's, mm. you know, for you specifically what things are going to be best um, and that will continue mm. to drive the way that we display everything on mm. the site over time. Yeah. And so how did you build that capability? Did you have to seek someone who was an expert to come in and kind of lead that project? Yeah, so we ended up we ended up sourcing some international expertise mm. on that um, because no one was really doing it here. Mm. No. We yeah. just we just we had this kind of vision of of what we wanted to achieve or what would really help our customers because the problem is, is right, you know, you pitch up in the moisturisers category and there's like 876 different moisturisers or however many they are and it's like, oh, well, which one should I get? Mm. You know? <laughs> which is all well and good if you've already decided, oh, well, I'm looking for, you know, Dermalogica, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you really don't know, I mean, for me, it's I, I call it the mum problem. So as my mum um, phones me sometimes and says, you know, like in the middle of the day when I've got like a zillion things that I'm doing and she'll be like, darling, I need a new moisturiser. What do you think that I should get? I'm oh, like, gosh. Well, there's a website, you know, you can go on and, you know, you can chat with people and she's like, oh, yeah, but there's, there's too many. Like, dude, you tell me. You tell me what I should get. And so I guess we're trying to build the software version of you know, the, you, the t- you tell me what yeah. I should get, you know, yeah. t- help me, help me, guide me, show me to the things that I'm going to like and that are going to make me feel great and are not going to end up half used at the back of my yeah. bathroom cupboard. Yeah. Well, I guess that's really, really important for you because you don't have a bricks and mortar presence. So of it's course. almost like how do you create this software that can provide personalised recommendations mm. that you otherwise might get from the sales assistant? Well, correct. And how can you do it even better? Yeah. Because yeah. a sales assistant is only one person. They only know so much. Yeah. I mean, I've been a sales assistant before. I know how much training they yeah. have. It's not very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how can you do better than that? How can you take, you know, the knowledge about all of the different products across all of these different brands um, and also combine it with the amount of customer preference data that we have? Mm, yeah. How can you make it even better than what someone in a, in a store could recommend mm. for you? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's great that you are using all of the data to figure this out and to improve the experience for the customer. Yeah. Do you feel like you really know the customer? Like, does it align with what they're saying to you face to face? Do you still use focus groups? Like what's the online and offline experience like with the customer? Is it lining up? I guess it's no shortage of data. Mm. <laughs> it's always well, the problem. The is, hard part is mm. that's the hard part. Is so extract the insights yeah. from the data. From a yeah. data perspective, it's like drinking from the fire hose. Yeah. And, and yeah. how do you try and um, you know coalesce mm. all of the all of the things that you know, all of the data points that the customer is giving you, and try and help them solve their problems? I mean, we do we do a lot of things like um, you know analyzing chat transcripts. Mm-hmm. You know, to go mm. on through and say, "Hey, what are the most what are the most common questions that people are asking us on live chat? What are the most common questions that people are asking us via social media or via email?" And kind of, you know, we can kind of categorize them in different ways, mm. um, and we that's how we then approach the process of building out different parts of technology 
for our site, whether it's around recommending routines, whether it's, you know, I'm using this product, what goes with that, whether it's I don't know how to find the right product for my concern, please help me. Um, you know, there's there's all different kinds. Um, yep. So it's interesting that you start with the, um, you start with collecting the insights through all of the sort of, you know, social media, forums, those channels, and then yeah. that helps inform how you cut the data or how you analyze the data. Yes, which is interesting. And wait yes, the data. yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. 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 there's no point spending two years and all this money trying to solve the wrong problem. Right? Mm. Totally. No. I was going to ask. You know, have, have you got it? Wrong? Has it got it wrong? Like, I mean, you know, that. Yeah. Oh, we're still testing different yeah. models um, of, you know, of the machine learning and, and how we weight different criteria. Mm. And so we're, so we're still in the testing phase. So we'll test, you know, one model against the previous winning mm-hmm. model. And then if you get an uplift, great. Well, that's the new winner. And then you te- you iterate again and then test something else against it. But it's, it's, like, it's been going on for a while. It's mm. like big brother, isn't it? Well, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you're doing. it's more yeah. like, you know, a helpful big but sister. It, yeah, oh, yes. like that. I mean, yeah. it's helping, you know, it's helping wade through all the thousands, mm. millions of options and providing the right option tailored to you. That's so right. It's, it's not about doing it to be creepy. It's no. about going, hey, I know this all is like really confusing. Can we hold your hand and help you through it? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> it's the customer, for, adopting the customer lens. That's it. Right. That's mm. it. Yeah. So for anyone that doesn't necessarily have the budget to be able to do something like this, but, sure. you know, obviously they want to create a more personalised experience for their customer. Yeah. What would you recommend on a budget? Well, look, you can, I mean, one-to-one personalisation is difficult. I mean, there are off-the-shelf products that you can get to Mm -hmm. help, you know, like sort of merchandising tools that you can integrate with your website and with whatever platform you're using. And so that's certainly, you know, I mean, we wanted to build something that was really built Mm. absolutely for our product and, you know, can take into account things like, you know, skin type and Mm -hmm. ingredient type and age of the customer and all that kind of thing, which... You know, it's it's not going to be completely bespoke, but it's certainly better than not personalising at all. Mm. Um, and I mean, the other sort of more old school way of doing it is to to build out some personas. You know, talk mm. to your talk to your customers and try and see if you can work out. Okay, may, do I have maybe three or four different types of customers mm. that want to interact with my site in a different way? And how can I tell <laughs> which one? they are by the way that they come to their site. Is there there a particular product that this particular type of customer will be looking for and therefore I know if they spend time on this page then what they want from me is this, you know. And you can do a lot of that now with, you know, live chat triggers and um, all all of that kind of stuff, even just the, the, the information that you put on the page to try and think about what that particular customer is going to be looking for when they look at that product. Mm. There's a lot you can do, Mm. yeah. Mm. I want to ask a question about community Mm. because, you know, every brand is talking about community, creating a two-way conversation with the customer and building that sense of, you know, um, community, I guess, around the brand. Sure. What are you guys doing? Oh, look, we're actually, we actually started really, really early. So we launched a forum on our site in, oh, it's maybe like... 2003, 2004, um, like in kind of a, a pre-social media time, which was actually tremendous in terms of getting customers to interact with each other. I think the thing we didn't anticipate was how challenging and time intensive it would be to manage mm. that community and to manage those discussions happening under our brand. And it's it's not to be, it's actually not to be undertaken lightly. No. Um, and in the end, it, it we got to the point where it was kind of in the too hard basket, and we ended up we ended up shutting it down. Oh. 
maybe 2010, but, you know, a lot of conversations are moving on to sort of Facebook and whatnot by that point Mm -hmm. anyway. Um, So, look, nowadays I guess it's, I mean, there's a a few different ways of doing it. I mean, obviously there's, you know, there's your social media community and I think if you go and have a look at, you know, our social feeds and Instagram and stuff in particular, it's pretty interactive and pretty fun and, you know, there's a lot you can do now, you know, in your stories about having little polls about things and Mm. um, getting one of the things that we really enjoyed is um, doing Instagram lives and things like masterclasses and allowing people to ask questions Mm. in real time um, to, you know, to our beauty editor or to, you know, a special guest makeup artist that we might have on or a special skincare guest. So it's a lot about those things. I think it's just kind of giving customers opportunities to talk to you and to show mm. them that you're listening, which you know, is reasonably rare, unfortunately. Mm. Um, I mean, our, you know, even our live chat, I think there's probably a lot of customers that haven't used it because they assume that it's like a bot or something. It isn't. It's all that, you know, it's all this crew here sitting kind of next door in the, in the room <laughs> and they, they love nothing better than sitting down and, you know, chatting with you online about, what skincare you should be using and and all of that kind of stuff. It's like there are there are real people here. Mm. You can talk to them. They're fun. They're not on any sales targets or anything. They're just right. They just like they're chatting the about us. Yeah. They're just there, you yeah. know. Um, and then I don't know. I mean, how else how else do you build community aside from you know trying to just genuinely mm. listen to your customers and and create the sort of content that they want and that they find engaging. Um, and a lot of the things that we're doing is in response to what customers are telling us that they're interested mm. in rather than us trying to tell them. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So what are some of the, you know, pieces of content or types of content or delivery of content that really resonates with your customers? Um, we find they like reality. Oh. We find the less polished, the less polished and shiny and slick, the better, um, that they actually just want us to be... Real, real people, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, if you listen to our podcast, the the Beauty Love IQ the podcast, podcast. Yes. I know it's so funny. And and honestly, that if you go and read the reviews for it on um, you know iTunes or something, then pretty much every single person says the same thing. You know, you guys are just so real and relatable, and but also I learn things, and I really you know I have a good time listening to it. Um, and I just don't think really many retailers are. Are doing that, being managing to do that for their customers. Yeah. It's just, hey, let's just let's just talk about you know all the ins and outs of everything. Mm. Um, and yes, you know we we do know a lot of stuff, and we yeah. can help to share that with you. But not, you know, not treat our customers like they're students or like they're patients or something, and yeah. they have to be given permission to go and acquire that knowledge, or that we're going to tell them what to do. That's mm. apart from wear sunscreen, we'll totally tell you to wear sunscreen. Oh but aside from that, it's like you know what, whatever floats your boat. You know, if yeah. if you if you want to be a you know fifteen step skincare routine person, then we can absolutely help you with that. And if all you want to do is put on sunscreen in the morning and use my cellar water at night, then that's also okay and, mm. you know, whatever whatever works. Yeah. Yeah. Was that your objective when you set up the podcast to be that open and transparent? Because it's quite a, you know, it, it is a fun conversation that goes on on that podcast. Um, did you set out to achieve that or have you kind of evolved? And is there a risk in maybe being too transparent or too relaxed and casual? 
I guess we'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Um, look, I can I tell you the podcast is the coolest thing because I did not have anything to do with it. I just, you know, that's the team just went and say, said, hey, we want to we want to do a podcast. And I said, I think that's a great idea. Go for it. I love you know, that you yeah. have the confidence in your team to allow that. Well, I, I didn't mm. know what they were going to talk about until I heard, you know, they said, okay, right, well, here's the drafts of the first three episodes. Um, and it's, you know, it's fairly, it's fairly out there, yeah. you know, but in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> I was like... Okay, we're going to be talking about anus hair then. So that's <laughs> where we're going. Um, and but it's it's like, well, if you if, you, if you're going to cut through, you've got to have yeah. something different. Totally right. Totally. But also, you- <laughs> she's lost it. <laughs> so right, funny. I'm glad you said anus hair. Sure. I was waiting for that. that we'll, we'll have, someone had to say it first. We'll have the little uh, E for explicit, probably now. <laughs> <laughs> Screw it, whatever. <laughs> so good. Um, okay, I want to change tact a little bit. So we interviewed Olivia Carr from Shh Silk. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, recently. And she told us that you were the queen of the pitch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She said it was your strength. She said yeah. that you're amazing. So can yeah. you tell us what are the key ingredients to a killer pitch? Well, it's really interesting. I, I think she's I think she's missold you somewhat. I, I'm actually having, you know, in terms of like the elevator pitch or that kind of thing, that's sort of, it's not necessarily my particular area of expertise, but what I am good at is um, is turning no into yes. That's actually my superpower is, yes, that the ability to, persuade. So, and then I guess where I had to hone that skill was all the years of brands saying no to me yeah. and not wanting to do e-commerce and going, no, the internet is gross. That's not a suitable place for premium beauty products. No, thank you very much. We would not like our entire business model to be disrupted. Um, despite the fact that it was going to be fun. <laughs> so, so I guess, yes, what I, what I got really good at over the years was listening to what people's, you know, what people's sort of points of resistance were, understanding why they couldn't, why they couldn't say yes. You know, what, what were they concerned about? Was it the overall perception of the brand? Was it, oh, I'm never going to get that past my zone manager because we don't do this, that or the other thing, or because I'm worried that it's going to upset all my salons or, you know, all of these kinds of things, any number of, and all of the, all of the different points of resistance. I mean, I heard everything, um, and yes, I got very very good to listening to that and understanding that, and I guess formulating responses to any of those particular you know concerns. But then also building up that trust over time because I think I think honestly, fundamentally, a big part of you know when people say no to you is is often what they're saying is. I'm not ready to take a risk on this yet. This seems too risky. I can't, you know, what if I get in trouble for doing this? Um, and to, to build up that trust over time was something that, look, I mean, it did, it took me, well, it took me 14 years to convince Estee Lauder. Mm. And the way that I went about that was partly to just try and, just to try and be useful to them um, the, because, you know, 
there's a certain aspect of asking and asking and asking that's like, okay, you're actually just draining my life and annoying me. Whereas Mm. if what you're doing instead is providing useful information points and, you know, giving case studies of similar brands that have done things that have been relevant or things that have happened overseas that might, you know, add some, you know, some colour around the, the things that they were sort of concerned about or confused about. If you're a useful person, then, hey, well, when the timing is right, you're going to be the one that's that's standing there and has built up, has built up that relationship. Mm. Um, the other thing I did was to build a position of authority within the, within the industry. So for 10 years, I reckon, I wrote a, um, a monthly column in the trade magazine for beauty retail, um, which all of the brands read. And I talked about, you know, all kinds of different digital trends and things that I was seeing from overseas and relevant things that we saw in customer behaviour at Adore Beauty. Um, and so that, you know, that's, that was, I was the person to, I was the person to talk to about digital. And when you decided that actually, or when, you know, Zone or Global or whatever handed down to you and said, hey, digital, you need to be doing that, then I was the one, I was the one there. Um, and sometimes it's just about, you know, waiting and positioning and mm. uh, being in the right place at the right time, even though you worked really hard to be there. What about like an investor sort of conversation? For, like, you sure. know, I'm sure you've experienced a lot of no's. I've experienced many no's. Yeah. Um, yes, many, <laughs> many. I pitched a lot. Look, I mean, you know, that yeah. certainly in our latest round there was, yeah. there was a lot of people I pitched. And look, to be honest, a lot of people just didn't get it what we were doing and particularly if you're pitching private equity, like it's all men. Mm. Um, It's almost all men. And the one thing everybody was worried about was Amazon. They're like, Mm. well, how does your business stack up against Amazon? Aren't you just, you know, kind of sitting there waiting to be eaten? And I said, well, I don't know that you really understand the way that our type of customer interacts with beauty because Amazon is a great place to go and buy, you know, spare batteries or electric toothbrush refills or, you know, socks. Totally. Um, But if you really care about beauty products, um, that's not really a channel that you're engaging with. And and maybe it's, you know, if you don't care about beauty products and all you want to do is, you know, just kind of do a replenishment buy for your Garnier shampoo and conditioner, then sure. Yeah, yep. probably we're not going to have that customer, but that's okay because that's not our core customer either. I mean, our customer that wants to talk about 10-step Korean serum routines. Not going not to Amazon. Not going to Amazon for that. No way. Um, you know, that's, 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 that's not, I mean, you know, when is Amazon ever going to, you know, write you a really interesting article about, um, you know, the, the 10 best mm. conditioners for oily hair but with dry ends? You know, they're just they're not going to. They're not going to do that. There's no ca- there's no depth of category yeah. knowledge. Yeah. So is that what you said to those investors when 100%. they were questioned? Yeah. Yeah. And did they understand that? Uh, some of them did. Yeah. And some of them didn't. <clears throat> and mm. you know, the ones that didn't are obviously not the right, not right. people, right? Because that's that's the other thing too yeah. is that you know you don't have to get everybody to say yes. You only have to get the right people to say yes. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. care about convincing the people, the people that don't understand or care about the beauty industry. It's like you know what I got better things to doing. That's fine. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. We do want to <laughs> dive into the whole funding conversation mm. in a sec, but I just want to ask one question. Yep. We interviewed um, Sarah Fry, who's the CEO of Nextdoor, which mm-hmm. is a social networking app, yep. recently, and she had a really tactical piece of advice for people pitching for investment. And sure. she said to us, when you go pitch, never backpedal, make your ask and put out your number and then shut up. Yep. 
Do you have a piece of advice like that for people who might be going into pitch for investment? Like one tactical thing that they should do in those meetings? Um, I think you should absolutely know your numbers. Yeah. Um, and have the have the courage of your convictions. What you've built, you don't need to apologise for all the things that are wrong with your business. Um, everybody understands that, you know, you've got to crack a few eggs if you're going to make an omelette. And, and I guess what we see, and particularly as I think women do this especially, right, they we, they know all of the things that are wrong with their business and they feel them so intimately that they feel that they need to kind of disclaim what they're saying or the, the claims that they're, you know, the good things about their business. And they just say, oh, but this and this and this and this. And like, just, just zip it, zip it. Zip it, talk about the good things. Mm. Talk about the good things. If they want to talk about, you know, the risks, then absolutely. I think, I mean, be honest 100% of the time. Yeah. But you don't need to talk yourself down. And but also too, I think when you, when you pitch your numbers and your forecasts, mm. those forecasts are, hey, if everything went right, you know, within, within reason, this is how that would look. Mm. You, know, you, do, you, you know, you put your best case forward, not your worst. Yeah. Um, because from what I've seen is that um, investors will generally assume that that's the case, that these are your best case numbers. And so they might say, all right, well, let's assume it was 30% less than that. Um, so don't you do the 30% because then they'll, they'll still take the 30%. They'll <laughs> yep. still take yeah. more off. That's good. You know, there's no, there's, no, there's no points for being conservative. Yeah. Yeah. Hey guys, it's Caitlin. I just have to jump in quickly here. In the spirit of transparency, we had a little tech issue. And so I had to re-record the next few questions. Uh, that's why it might sound a little bit different. Don't worry, these questions are word for word. Sorry. So in 2014, you took on investment from Woolies. Uh, why did you decide that that was the right time to look for and accept external funding? Sure. Um, look, timing-wise, the business was... The business was starting to grow more quickly and it, it felt very different. It didn't feel like we were wading through sludge to try and sort of convince every customer one by one. It felt like um, it felt like we kept hitting the ceiling um, because we didn't have enough money or we didn't have enough inventory or we couldn't hire enough people or, the, you know, there were too many opportunities and we couldn't do them. Um, and so it, it started to feel quite different. Um, it started to feel like we were just, you know, constrained by all the things we didn't have rather than pushing things uphill, if that makes sense. Um, so definitely knew that we were going to have to raise capital to sort of mm. get over that hump of scale, mm. um, which which comes for every business at some point in time. Um, so, yeah, we look, went out looking for some smart money. So what I wanted was not just, okay, I need some cash, but I would like some cash and something else, mm -hmm. you know, whether it was, you know, some resources or a database or, you know, some kind of thing that would give us a better shot at getting to the next stage, which, yes, ended up being, well, look, after 14 months, I mean, it took a long time. I think I really, I really undercooked the amount of time that I thought it was, it was going to take. So that, that 14 months was the whole time, like of needing money the whole time and having wow. to balance cash flow of a knife edge and nearly going under a few times. But um, so was some, there were some hairy moments in that 14 months. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because cash flow is, you know, it's like the most critical thing in business. <sighs> it's the worst. How, how did you manage that and what did you do at those times when you were like, 
crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, look, there were a few of those moments. Um, I mean, in the end, what we realised, particularly while we were trying to raise capital, because my co-founder and I were both trying to be in all those conversations together, and, and, and then we sort of reached the first, you know, sort of narrow... You know, narrow miss and um, and realised that we couldn't have both, you know, we'd taken our eye off the business. And so the decision that we made was that I would I would continue to run the raise and he needed to go back and, and keep an eye on the business because it needed to be managed really closely. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first thing is, is raising capital is such a time suck. But, yeah, look, oh, there were definitely, there was, I mean, there were at least a couple of times where I, I remember um, James sort of, motioning to me with her head because we were we were in this open plan office and so we couldn't have the conversation there and he'd sort of do these ones and and go you know like meet me out in the car in the car park and we go and sit in the car park and he's like I think we've run out of money I think we're going to run out of money I don't think we're going to make payroll next week and we'd sit in the car and cry for a bit and then we'd go okay come on what can we do what can we do like let's just let's just pull something out and so it was always okay right can we um can we, you know, is there a promotion that we could run? Is there, um, what about if we do like a reactivation campaign to anyone who hasn't bought something in six months? Like, can we just, you know, try something um, and always manage to skate through somehow? But yeah, it was um, just feeling constantly nauseous all of the time. <laughs> um, the turning point was actually getting the deal done with Woolies and yeah. then having cash in the bank account for the first time. And that was like, whoa, <laughs> for a minute. And then it was like, oh, goodness, we've pitched all these big projections. We have to actually go Deliver. and do them now. <laughs> and that was a whole other set of challenges. And that was a whole other set of challenges, but um, much, much better challenges yeah. Than, yeah. than the scary ones, yeah. Yeah, scary in a different way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it certainly certainly worked yeah. and it turns yeah. out, yes, we did take the money at the, at the right time and do the right things with it, so that was good. Um, I think the, the challenge that we faced after oh, probably probably 12 months in is that they had a lot of a lot of personnel changes big high level strategy changes which was nothing to do with us but then I don't think there was the there was the support from within mm. the business for what we were what we were doing and then it was like all right well if we're kind of not on the same page anymore then you know probably we should go and mm. um yeah put the shares back what was just like that, what was that process like of buying the shares back? And I, I believe you got a bank loan to do that. Yes, we did yeah. manage to get debt funding for that, <clears throat> yeah. so so that was good. But yeah, look, I probably can't talk a lot yeah. more about yeah. the ins and outs of it. Totally, um, that's totally fine. Due to you know being NDA'd, um, <laughs> but yeah, look, it was it was. I mean, from my perspective, it was. I don't have any. Yeah. regrets about it. I think yeah. people sort of think that there must be some sort of horrible story behind it. There wasn't. It no, was just, yeah. you know, we were on the same path and then we weren't and then it didn't really make sense anymore. So, yeah. So you sold part of the business. Yes. Then you bought it back. Then we bought it back. And then this year you sold 60% yes. stake in the business yes. to private equity. Yes. Why have you gone down that path? Um, look, it was, it was always the plan okay. that you know, at some point to, um, you know, you'd try and build a thing of value Mm -hmm. and then hopefully you can sell some of it. Um, What I think I, you know, we've still got really big plans for the business and and what we think it can be. And certainly, you know, the previous experience with Woolworths has shown us that, you know, if you take on the right partner at the right time, goodness, it really helps to increase your chances of 
of getting there. Um, and yeah, it was all about, okay, right, well, let's try and, let's try and find the right partner and really put the foot to the floor and go. Yeah. I think, I think it's always challenging trying to do everything under your own steam. Yeah. Um, because it's just always a bit limiting. You've always got a list of 20 things to do and you can only afford to do like three of them at the moment. And, and it's, it's, it's much more fun if you can do all of them. <laughs> yeah. And was that important for you that you wanted to have somebody who was, wasn't going to sort of come in and exercise control? I think the biggest thing, the biggest thing for me is that I think the culture that we've built up here over 19 years um, is a really rare and beautiful thing. And I think it's it's a culture that is both positive and high performance, which is <laughs> combining those two things is not nothing. And I didn't, I didn't want, you know, I, I think I would have found it very hard to have someone, you know, sort of barging in and trying to change things here. I mean, what what we we wanted was someone who would love what we were doing here and just want us to do more of it. Mm. Um, that's that's really what we're after, and I feel like we've achieved that so far, so good. I do have a question on culture mm. um, because obviously as a business grows, you know, quite rapidly yep. and take, you know, takes on more people that can in some instances affect mm. the culture. Yep. How have you managed to keep such a positive culture as you've grown? Um, some work that we did quite early on, um, there was a year where we went from 12 people to about 25 mm. people in a year and made a couple of hasty hires and there were some personality clashes in the business and it all mm. actually became quite a kind of a toxic place for a little while. Um, and after we we got through that, I, you know, my co-founder and I said to each other, like, I don't, I don't want that to happen again. Yeah. I didn't like I didn't like that. That was uncool. And uh, and so sat down with, with all of the rest of the group and said, right, you know, when, when things are good here, why are they good? Like, what what behaviours are we seeing? When things are bad here, what are the what were the behaviours that we saw? And and to work together on putting um, you know a list of values that we could use as really key decision making tools. So in making our recruitment decisions, in managing performance, in um, you know our everyday decisions of how we do things here, we needed some guiding kind of some guiding principles or some some ways that we. Mm that we did things and ever since we did that and really integrated that into everything that we do, we've had far fewer issues and I think that's that's really what's helped to underpin mm. a good culture. So looking forward, can you tell us how you balance innovation, growth and customer demands? Yep. Look, I think having that that customer centric mm. focus is really the most important thing because i think it's also really easy to get distracted mm. by new technology and it's like oh look something shiny you know <laughs> i need to run and do this thing you know we need to be doing tiktok or we need to be doing you know we we need to like we need to be doing all of the things and and um you know, you've got to be able to always bring it back to the customer and what problem are you trying to solve for the customer? You know, what are you trying to be for them and, and for who? Who is your customer? Um, because you can't be everything to everybody. Yes. That's not possible. So you've got to have a really clear understanding, you know, kind of as your North Star almost as to who is your customer and what problem are you trying to solve for them? Because then it makes it much easier to mm. prioritise all of your other decisions 
does this make sense? Does this add value to my customers in the long term? Will they understand that? Will this be a thing that my particular customer will use? And then usually it's 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 so much easier because otherwise mm-hmm. you you know you can get distracted and pulled in a zillion different directions. How do you make sure that you don't confuse a customer in the process? I mean, if there's sort of ten ideas that you're iterating and and if they're customer facing, yeah. How do you make sure you do that in a way that the customer doesn't get confused or it doesn't seem like you're shooting from the hip? Does that make sense? <laughs> I'm asking this as yep. a personal question for yep. us because yep. we've got a lot of different ideas for next year that we want to test. Yeah. And we're trying to think about how we test them sequentially so they make sense. And like, does yeah. that matter? <laughs> Look, I think it matters in the things that are really visible or that's it, it I think it I think it only matters if these things are gonna potentially take you in very different directions yeah. if all these things are potentially taking you in the same direction then I don't think customers sort of will see that as weird mm. um and then sometimes it makes sense to you know maybe only try two or three three things at a time so that there's not like too yeah. much going on and also too that you give each thing a chance to succeed because yeah. also too sometimes things need like a little bit of time mm. to you know to give them yeah. give them a shot before you decide oh no this isn't working um and your customers need a chance to sort of get used to them or even understand that that's what you're doing so it's always about trying to build out okay well maybe I have 10 different things that I want to do but in the first quarter I'm just going to test two of them yeah see how those two go. So I want to go back to those moments of struggle in your business. Are there any other moments which we might find familiar and that you could shed some light on? Oh, um, many, many moments of, of struggle. I think it's really good to have a reasonably diverse network of people with different kinds of skills and experiences just because sometimes it just helps just to have someone to vent to. Um, I think that was my biggest challenge in the very early years because there wasn't this startup ecosystem. I didn't know anybody else. You know, I thought it was only me going through this, you know, this private struggle in my in my garage and um, and I actually got quite depressed um, in the first year or two. I, I mean, it was just to the point where I was like, okay, every morning I was getting up and sitting there in my pyjamas and wasn't really going anywhere and, and yeah, and it was it was actually really depressing. And I had to, you know, go home to my parents in Tassie for a couple of weeks and just kind of, you know, have like let my mum look after me for a couple of weeks Mm. and and that sort of thing to just sort of pick myself up. And, um, and I think, yeah, I think the entrepreneur journey can be really, really lonely. And so you have to invest some time in making sure you've got enough backup for when your energy levels are low, that you you know you've you've got your people mm. <laughs> who can at least sit down and have a wine with you and go, yeah, mate, been there, that sucks. Um, I mean, I still now have a women's um, peer mentoring group that we mm. we catch up once a month over breakfast and sometimes just vent. You yeah. know, sometimes we solve each other's problems, but sometimes it's good just to kind of go blah and get it out, get it, off get it out, and have, with other people who understand or have been there in that capacity, because um, then it just kind of normalizes the problem. Yeah. It doesn't seem so big. Yeah, yeah. love that. Mm. That's kind of yeah. it's kind of you being. guys, isn't yeah. it? It's that's that's exactly yeah. it. And and it's I think it's there's so much more support. Um, for women entrepreneurs nowadays, yeah. I think it gives us all a much better shot of succeeding yeah. just mentally, 
because it's <laughs> bloody hard. It's bloody hard, and I, t- you know, nobody who, nobody who hasn't done it, like, will ever understand what you know what that's actually like, and that you know people will be, oh, that's so inspiring. It's like, oh, is it though? <laughs> if only you knew. <laughs> is it? Oh boy, yeah, yeah. Not that it's, you know, not that it's not worth it. Not that it's, yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's the biggest buzz you can get as well, right? That's why we don't all need to go and jump out of planes or anything because yeah. we get that amount of adrenaline just in day-to-day life. Every day. <laughs> the dopamine hit. Yeah. <laughs> we have a couple of final questions. Mm-hmm. What's one thing that you need right now? What's one thing that mm. I need right now? Oh, I could smash a coffee. Um <laughs> No, that's by the by. Uh, what's one thing that I need right now? Um, I need a really good CFO. Okay. If anyone knows one, that'd be great. <laughs> Put that out there. Flip me one of those. That'd be that'd be excellent. So at Lady Brains, we believe that you can't do this alone. You know, we are absolutely the power of our networks. Who's someone in your network that's enabled you, that's opened a door, someone that's made all the difference in your world? Um, goodness, there's there's actually many people um, in my life and actually a lot of them have been men, which is tremendous. Um, like there's, there's a fantastic group of men that have helped me and that have opened doors for me and have not ever been creepy and, you know, like really just people who have been in my corner. Um, probably one person that really helped me at the right time um, was my friend Jane. Jane was Jane's was mentoring me at the time as sort of pre-Woolies days when we were sort of at that, that, you know, that first stage of kind of the hockey stick growth when it was all sort of getting a bit scary and she um, has a very deep understanding of both digital and the beauty industry. Um, and it was actually her that, you know, sort of said to me, look, if you're serious about raising some capital, I know some people who would be interested. And it was actually her that introduced me to Woolworths. Wow. So she said, I'm going to set up a meeting for you. And I said, oh, okay. And then she phoned me the next day and said, look, I'm set up the meeting. So your meeting's with Woolworths. And I was like, <laughs> don't be an idiot. I said, don't be stupid. And she goes, I'm not being stupid. And I said, oh, Okay. No, I, 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 sure. I can do this. I can do this. This will be fine. She goes, no, it'll be fine. I'm like, sure, it'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, obviously it was. <laughs> Are you insane? Um, yeah. So, so that's yeah. She was she was crazy, but my kind of crazy. Thanks, Jane. Thank you <laughs> for sitting down with us. It was such a great chat. Oh, pleasure. Anytime. We would love to hear what you thought of this chat. You can join the conversation over on Instagram at lady.brains. A couple of things that we took out of this. So she spoke about the importance of positioning herself as an expert in her industry by writing a weekly column. It is so critical to build your personal brand these days. So look for opportunities that will position you as a thought leader in your industry in a credible way and in front of your target market. Secondly, it's pretty comforting to know that even a business of that size can have cash flow issues. The biggest thing we took out of this was that she was able to quickly and tactically find ways to bring cash into the business. For her, it was about re-engaging old customers who hadn't brought from her in a while by running a promotion. But if you find yourself in a similar situation, what are some of the creative ways that you can bring cash monies into your bank account? And lastly, it was really interesting to hear how Kate got brands on board in the beginning. 
In those meetings, she took the time to truly understand their objections and instead of taking a no on face value, she dug deeper to figure out why they weren't ready before answering their concerns and evolving her business proposition. As always, thank you so much for all of your positive responses. We love hearing what you think of the episodes. Uh, We'd love to continue the conversation over on Instagram, so feel free to slide on into our DMs at lady.brains. Ladyland is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolich.